Welcome to the Mertzbar podcast, a podcast where we speak to musicians about their non-musical interests. Each episode features a guest discussing a work of art that they love, ranging from short stories to Stone Age sculpture. At least, that's where the conversation begins. As you'll hear, we often end up in surprising places. I'm your host, Bridget Coleridge, the violinist of the Mertz Trio, and today I'm speaking to my very inspiring friend, the Finnish violinist and quartet player, Sini Simonen. My name is Sini Simonen. I'm a violinist. My main occupation is that I am playing the first violin in the Castellan String Quartet. I asked Sini to nominate a non-musical work that has impacted her life, and she immediately responded with Virginia Woolf's 1927 novel, To the Lighthouse. I was really thrilled because this is a book that I've loved for a very long time and I couldn't wait to hear Sini's insights. I'm sure many of you might be familiar with the novel too, but just in case, I decided a bit unkindly to ask Sini on the spot to do something very difficult, to tell us what To the Lighthouse is about. So this book tells the story of a family and some guests on one day and then on another day and these two days are separated by 10 years. The book is about many things. The title to the lighthouse is is a kind of a journey but actually arriving to the lighthouse isn't very meaningful in the end. It explores the relations within a family, the creative process, Virginia Woolf's childhood memories, women, men, mothers, fathers and children. It tries to go <laughs> into internal spaces from many perspectives. So in a way, nothing happens. And in another way, everything happens. Do you remember the first time that you read To the Lighthouse? It wasn't that long ago. I think it was about four or five years ago. And I was actually given it by the cellist in my string quartet who loves literature and just thought that it would be something that would speak to me. I'd also recently moved to the UK at that time. So I'm originally from Finland and I've lived in different countries in Europe for, I don't know, 14 years now and sort of moved from language area to language area and uh, it was the time that I really entered full-time an English-speaking culture and it was interesting for me to step fully into this uh, fullness of being in English, also reading literature in English. How did it make you feel? Do you remember the kind of instinctual response that you had to Wolf's language in particular? Very much, because it was so unusual I've always loved reading and there are sort of different types of reading that I feel drawn to. One is where there's something so instantly recognisable and instinctually sort of home about the way the writer writes that, that it's it's sort of this wonderful feeling of, oh yes, I understand, uh, I'm not alone in the world. And those books are wonderful to read, but I think the ones that stay with me the most are the ones that at first I feel like I cannot capture it. It's like 
something shimmering, like a like a light dancing at the edge of my vision, where I feel like there's something um, true and deep and precious, but I I, can, I can't catch it. And that's exactly how I felt about this book, about the way Virginia Woolf writes. I think, regards to the language, I still have this sense of always being on the threshold somehow of English, and and also actually now that I've lived so long away from Finland, of Finnish too. <laughs> there's a lot of water in this book. There's a lot of sea. There's a lot of waves, and there's a lot of different flickers of light on the water. And I, I see the flicker of the light, but I'm not the fish in it. <laughs> and sometimes that makes me a bit sad, but. On the other hand, there is something sort of really fascinating about being able to step into different kingdoms of, of language. That's true of music as well for all of us. We're stepping into languages. <laughs> yeah. In a way, it feels to me almost like you come to the real core of what Wolf is trying to describe as almost the the artistic act or the idea of creation in that novel in particular. I was just struck by it because when I first read it, I was studying it, you know, in a literature class. And so much of it was about being hyper-conscious of the style that was at play and the ways that language was being very, very deliberately manipulated. And then coming back to it now, I realized that it was almost like this memory of it had been stored inside me that wasn't anything to do with words and their meaning, but it was more as if I had this memory of the kind of rhythm of it and the way that it pulsed, almost as like a physical experience of the text. It just makes me think of that when when you talk about feeling at the edge of, of Finnish or at the edge of English, but you know, we could talk about it as like a, a liminal state or this space that is opened up. Wolf talks a lot about spaces. And so one of the ways in which she talks about the artistic act is almost as if a space has been created. Is that something that you think about in terms of, you know, your own artistic practice, music making? It's definitely a state of summoning up shapes. It's complicated because we are translators of the composer's languages when we play. You're getting close to multiple sources. So the source of the language of the composer, but also some quite primal source within you that you sort of try to gain access to. In terms of the wolf, I find it really wonderful how she reaches into that inner space, that internal world, how she manages to convey that with words, whereas in the real world, most of the dialogue is absolutely trivial to what is really being communicated between the characters of the book, how she manages to bring us into these internal fluctuating spaces, interacting between the characters rather wordlessly between them, but we'll... <laughs> reaches there somehow with her words.
One question I have that relates to the idea of, of reading, which you mentioned, reading as a kind of interpretation of language, very fundamental to music making. And I wonder if you could just speak a little more about the way that you understand the importance of reading, beginning more basically with, with something as simple as this, as, as reading a novel. How do you understand the way that that might feed into what you do? Oh, I think it's something very instinctive. I think we pull up images and words and sounds and forms from somewhere inside us. And I mean, for me, when I play music, I, I often have bits and pieces of phrases sort of rise up to the surface. And when I read a book, I can feel, I don't know, the, the closeness of the internal worlds of the characters, the, the kinds of internal worlds that you're trying to reach with music. Uh, it's all reaching into a space, <laughs> a space coming up again. Does verbal language play a part in the way that you work? And I'm thinking specifically of your work within the quartet. I know that in my work and with the trio, it's often very important to be able to speak about what you're striving for or, or the character that you might hear or just to communicate understanding. And I know that that's not always the case. Everybody has their different things that they lean on to try and communicate. In my quartet, when we have a rehearsal process, I think we may speak a little bit less than many other groups. We speak when we've failed to reach each other by playing, but sometimes there is a kind of point of almost galvanizing just a turn of phrase an image something that someone says and then the whole turns I thought of this book partly in connection to, to my music making in that to be in a quartet is a very specific kind of relational universe to be in a quartet uh, I mean often the metaphor people say that it's like being married to three other people which I don't know if it's exactly that, but it's definitely a hugely complicated web of relations, a lot of unspoken communication. And one of the most interesting things about playing quartet is the kind of juxtaposition of your individual voice and the collective voice, because with four stringed instruments, you can be extremely unified. You have the option of being almost impersonal just just a group and then also quartets are often some of the most personal works that the composers wrote you're constantly alternating between your individual being the kind of collective sphere of the quartet which is different than some of its members it's something else and taking and giving space another space metaphor and another thing that's <laughs> I think very close to Wolf's world. Sometimes when I play concerts, just a phrase comes up to me from out of somewhere. It just comes up to me when I play and it makes some kind of strange sense and guides me <laughs> through that moment. And then it's gone. But I think rather than the music guiding the words or the words guiding the music, they both come from a sort of 
creative inner source that manifests in many ways. You also mentioned time. The book is full of meditations of time and ghosts of people and experience of time. I mean, I, I love how it's sort of structured that, you know, first half is one evening and then in a few pages, 10 years pass. And then we're again concentrating on a moment and, and sort of everything <laughs> seems to be forever present. And yet, when people die and they're taken from us, there's a sort of a shock in a parenthesis somewhere. And, and yes, you know, she died that night and that really speaks. So as a performer, we are forever communing with the voices of the composers, often from the past, sometimes living and contemporary, but often kind of dance with what looks to be black blobs on a page that you're trying to capture and understand the spirit and form of them. And yeah, there's something sort of ghost-like, but also wonderful about feeling connected to those little black blobs that someone wrote on a page two or three hundred years ago. And that in a kind of your own little way, you're, you're reaching for those voices from the past that are as accessible as when they first were written down. How things perish and how they don't. It's a dialogue between now and then, no matter how many years are in between. You play in a quartet and we've spoken a little bit about the ways in which communication is so important within that collective. And then the communication that you understand yourself individually, but also collectively having with the voice of the composer through the music. And I'm also wondering about how you how you think of the audience. And I, I know it's it feels very bittersweet to be speaking about an audience now when <laughs> we none of us have seen very many audiences recently, but I felt really almost urged on by the wolf to think about well what what part I suppose does the audience play in creating meaning? Well I think in all its tragedy, what the pandemic has really made so tangible is the role of the audience or how essential the connection, sort of the living energy of the room is to music making. There are, of course, all these ideas of music as absolute music, but how music, when being played live as a sort of living auditory organism in the room, and then interacting with living bodies, how that that's just so unquestionable. <laughs> so much of the meaning is what is being passed between people, from performer to listener, but also that the listener is creating <laughs> the space in which the performer can create sound. It's hard to be a musician in the pandemic. You know, you look at the world and so many people are able to contribute in little ways to just try and work so that somehow we get past this. And as a musician, I initially had a lot of questions of like, well, what am I for? I mean, I, I started to, like, one of my lifelines has been to do some voluntary work. And, you know, that feels so 
incredibly comfortingly practical and direct that yes this is something I can do <laughs> whereas as a musician so much sort of loss of meaning loss of loss of everything the thing is as soon as I'm in a room with other musicians and people and and we share an experience of music so many of those questions just melt away because it's this living organism between all of us doesn't belong to anyone actually doesn't belong to me doesn't even belong to the composer really light i guess again light dancing in a pattern an interactive pattern between each person in the room Wolf talks a lot about, through Lily and through Mrs. Ramsey, this idea of this truth, you know, truth with a capital T almost, or this reality. Like, what is the truth of all of this living that we're doing? Do you have that sense in the way that you approach your own artistic practice or the way that you think about music? Yeah, 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 they they all are in search of, of some truth and at the same time in Wolf there is a kind of dreamlike or vision-like quality to the deeper core reality almost like they kind of sway between despair and visions and you know being profoundly moved by something and but at the same time going to this dark ledge within which is never too far from you. Truth and music I don't know I think someone once said that what is good music is music where you understand that something that is true is being expressed in whatever way that may be. My own way of processing music is, I guess, to look at it with as many tools as occur to me analytically, but also very intuitively, and just to try and let the music you know, breathe and speak and see what I can understand about it. What is this note and what is that note? I mean, I don't only play string quartet, but in you know before the pandemic, it did take over our lives very much. And we each have a different process and a different understanding of music and truth and a different focus. So we each kind of tug three of others towards our perspective, but also, you know, always <laughs> move around it's a strange kind of involuntary dance. I think I, I do gravitate towards yeah, thinking a lot about the meaning of this and that. And someone might say that the meaning of this or that doesn't actually mean anything. <laughs> uh, someone else might say that music doesn't have meaning as such. But to me, it is just edging closer and closer towards a kind of source, which reveals itself to you slowly. You need to experience the music in all kinds of different states. I think everyone knows that when you perform a piece through years, your understanding of it 
changes if it's a piece with a rich inner life each time you experience it something in you understands a little bit more something is enriched in the interaction of you and the piece and your colleagues and everyone who's listening it breeds and dances and tells you things and sometimes i go wrong sometimes i go too much into myself and not into the piece but then again i think this idea of truth of yourself i think like Lily Briscoe was trying to see the truth of the scene as she saw it. The vision lived in her ten years and she couldn't reach it, she couldn't paint it. And then she had it. And that was some kind of interaction between her and the scene. I think you can make the same kind of metaphor about a composed piece of music and a performer living with it and trying to get closer to a kind of <laughs> something that's both completely personal but also true of the scene or the piece. I feel really struck by that ending where she does have the vision and she draws the line down and the book as a whole. It's so much about motion and energy and even the title to the lighthouse, the act of going, of, of movement. That speaks really interestingly to what you're saying about this idea of striving, striving towards meaning. And as I'm listening to you speaking, it it seems to me almost irrelevant whether or not you ever get there or whether we, any of us, ever reach that source, as, as you said. It's more about that verb, attempting it, striving. Lily says that she has her vision. And I think that that's such an interesting choice of word that somehow feels very true to the the music making experience or the performance experience because a vision slips away and that's part of its extraordinary beauty. You glimpse it and it's gone, but its effect stays with you long afterwards and perhaps it changes how you how you understand. And so it's almost, again, irrelevant what Lily's painting looks like. The painting is is almost the least important part of this whole 10-year journey to this downward stroke. The art, in inverted commas, has been happening all the time around her in all of this movement. Yes, that process for her, that thing of, of painting, forms a kind of anchor for her in her life that allows her actually to be herself. But what you were saying, yeah, music itself, it unfolds in time. You can never freeze it. When you play, you're within a wave, within a movement, and then it's gone. And that's it. <laughs> that's the beauty. It doesn't sound like anything when you say it out loud, but somehow there's such a poignancy in that. Yeah, there's something extremely beautiful about being in motion within music. And actually, so much of the practice of music is to find the right kind of motion, how it is unfolding. If we speak of motion, and you spoke so beautifully about the idea of the audience being in the room with you, and there's that sense of, of physical closeness, I wonder how you think about a kind of bodily knowledge that you you have as an instrumentalist in particular Another thing that really struck me when I was rereading To the Lighthouse this time was how much of it is 
to do with movement and also to do with a really overt idea of words failing this bodily knowledge. I think it's Lily who has that very radical statement in the context of the time that Wolf is writing where Lily says, how can I even begin to think that this verbal language can convey what is essentially here within my body? I understand this thing called life through my limbs, through what it is that I feel at a very basic level. I found that so compelling particularly as an instrumentalist, to think about that. I think that that's often a kind of language that is, is absent from discussion when we, when we speak about music. But I think that a lot of musicians who perform, that's just such a, a fundamental part of how you experience music and, and also a fundamental part of your communication with your audience and you know, with your fellow musicians. Yes, somehow we translate consciousness into movement and movement into consciousness. You know, the beauty of the musician is to be at that, you know, very intersection of the body and the mind. To explore that with um, poetry and violence (laughs) and everything. Sometimes I do wish that when I play to people, in a concert hall, I wish that they could also go through the physical process of it with me, not only the hearing of it. Yeah, because it, it's a different way of experiencing it, and sometimes more intense, often more intense, because your body is following the shapes of the music and you're hitting these ancient <laughs> things about being human. It's another truth, I think, that we are forever trying to translate and forever trying to share. <laughs> with each other, so that we're not alone. And that's it for episode two of the Mertzbau podcast. Many thanks to Cine Simonen and to all of you for tuning in. As usual, you can find links to the works mentioned in this episode in the show notes, And you can also follow us on social media at MertzbauPod. And join us next week. We'll be talking about clouds, composition, and how to measure time. I'm your host, Bridget Coleridge, for the Mertz Trio. Mertz Trio.